This episode is brought to you by Blockdaemon. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode, but now on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. This week, I'm joined, as always, by my fearless co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. I'm using fearless, fearless intentionally. Yeah, it's been fearless a fearful is beautiful. week. Fearless is beautiful, and it works on so many levels. So as we as we go into the sock reveal, I, I, I went back and forth and back and forth between the Bitcoin bull market socks. I am wearing the orange shirt today, uh, which I decided to wear yesterday. So if yesterday turns out to be the bottom, it's all because of me, because I wore the Bitcoin bull socks yesterday. Mm. But today I am, and I still don't have the sock cam, but today I am wearing the, you know, rest in peace Bitcoin. And look <laughs> at that date, 2019. 2019. 2019, right? So I'm gonna read a tweet, and you can put this in the show notes if you want. Uh, when I fell from 30 to two, they said I was dead. When I fell from 220 to 70, they said I was dead. When I fell from 1,100 to 200, they said I was dead. When I fell from 20,000 to 3,000, they said I was dead. Fall down seven times, get up eight. Not dead. I am Bitcoin. So, you know, fell from 69 to 17.5, not dead. And, uh, you know, Bitcoin is not dead. It is not going to be dead. And all the stuff that's going on, all the grave dancing, all the celebrating by the non-crypto people, and even the crypto people. I don't get that. Why would crypto people grave dance on each other? It doesn't make sense to me. It really doesn't. But oh. uh, I don't know. Human nature. I, I don't understand it either. Um, I mean, part of this is maybe it's like, I mean, I, in all the time that I've been in, I've been in crypto, which is, uh, you know, I missed the, the blow up of Mt. Gox and everything. I've never seen, I mean, just more forced selling, more panic, more, I mean, it's got to be one of the worst months and one of the worst uh, years to be part of this industry, honestly. And I say worst just in terms of like pessimism and things unfolding and all that kind of stuff. But I, well, I would and we talked about this, right? This we talked about this, I guess, three or four weeks ago. Um, there was this descending triangle pattern. It was just like the fall of 2018, where you, you hit this level and you bounce. And then you hit this level and you bounce lower. And you hit this level and you bounce lower. And it makes this descending triangle, flat along the bottom, descending. And the thing is, if you can break out of that up, it's great. But if you don't and you break through the floor, it is instantaneous, causes massive force selling, liquidations, fear mongering, and piling on. And I went back and looked at some of the headlines from November 15th, kind of through December 15th of uh, 2018. And it was unbelievable, Michael. I mean, you could have written them this week. I mean, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and, you know, right after we recorded the show two weeks ago, because we did it a day early because I was traveling, uh, I tweeted Thursday night uh, that, look, no one wants to hear this. Uh, but the longer we stay at this 30,000 level, the more likely it is this is the descending triangle and we are going for a final puke of, of 15K. And... I mean, people are ripping me and they're like, that, that's impossible. You know, that's ridiculous. And I'm like, look, I, I'm not predicting it and I'm not 
wishing for it. I'm just telling you that the risk is non-zero and growing every day we stay and bam, literally two days later, you know, we're headed and we didn't hit quite 15 because again, I don't, I don't have crystal ball, but um, you know, I think it's possible that we're in the healing phase now, uh, which was that period from kind of December 15th through kind of March of 2019. And, you know, I tweeted, actually, I, 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 I waited on that. Actually, that tweet was from June. So it, it did, I did wait for a little re uh, recovery bottom uh, um, kind of confirmation before I said, for sure, we're not dead. So maybe I'm premature here, but right. not dead. It's, you know, it's a funny thing, especially, you know, being an operator in this industry, going from an extreme euphoric high to, you know, devastating lows. And, you know, you'll see, I think over the course of the next 12 months, who are the good opera, who are the good and realistic operators in the space, right? Um, you know, we've talked about yep. this on the show, the way business planning works, right, is, you know, uh, ma the management team has some sort of revenue forecast in mind, they understand their cost structure, and then they reverse engineer that. Um, good management teams right now should be, you know, drastically changing. Uh, you know, what they think uh, they can earn over the course of the next 12 to 18 months, right? And then yep. sometimes that means difficult decisions for your organization, right? And, you know, there are varying degrees here. It depends on how profitable you are. It depends on the war chest and the balance sheet that you build up, your access to venture funding. Uh, it depends on how offsides you were in terms of cost, right? It's different for everyone. But I think everyone is basically going through the same exercise right now. And, you know, frankly, this industry is full of young founders. So we will see, right, uh, who, who kind of pulls through. But and I, think, you know. and I think that's a really important point that despite the fact that there's massive, you know, intelligence, uh, enthusiasm, uh, charisma, uh, all of this, this talent migration into the space, the one thing, there aren't that many people like me <laughs> with white hair. There are a lot of people who are, are young. And young is not bad. In fact, young is good. Young is awesome. But young is inexperienced. In fact, it's funny you said it. I was, I was just thinking that, uh, think of all the things that you think of when you say the word wise. Right? All the pictures of people. They all have white hair, right? And so I was going to mm -hmm. tweet this morning, you know, there's a chemical process that happens when your brain is really highly active and you're really wise that turns your hair white. Well, actually, that's not true, but I, I like saying it because now I have white hair. Um, but actually, it might be true. It might be true. It's like I have another theory that if you're super, super smart, like, like, like intelligence, super smart, you go bald. Because, you know, look at people like Cliff Asnes. I mean, his brain is just, I think it just burns the hair out of the, out of the follicles. It's funny you say Cliff. I, he's like one of my favorite. I, I was telling my friend yesterday, he's like one of my favorite people to listen to speak. He has, he has this episode, uh, Invest Like the Best, uh, like four years ago or something. I still go back and listen to it. It's, I just like listening to that guy for some no, reason. He's the best. And, and he's a yeah. good guy. He's a good person. He's self-deprecating. I mean, he's actually pretty damn funny. Um, mm. But, you know, you having think a good year too, all, by the way. Pardon? He's having a good year as well. well uh, of course he is. Yeah. Of course yeah. he is, because discipline matters. Discipline matters most in times of stress. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's funny you say because I saw somebody yesterday saying, "Yo, you know, Cliff on TV taking a victory lap after being wrong for so many years is exactly the bottom." I'm like, dude, 
<laughs> you just don't understand math. Uh, Cliff <laughs> understands math. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I want to get to some of the, the charts that we've got, uh, you know, queued up for this week. I know we've been talking about uh, the world of crypto here, but let's take a detour into macro land for a second. By the way, while you're pulling that up, how much fun was last week with Dan and doing, it was great. doing the OMGs on macro? Was, it was a blast. It was a blast. Um, you're an I mean, honorary he, OMG, Michael. You're an, you're I, an honorary I'm, old guy. <laughs> thank you. In, in spirit. I've still got the brown hair, but I'm sure it'll go gray soon. Um, with all, all the, the forced wisdom uh, I'm, I'm, is being shoved That's down true. my throat these last uh, two years. Um, all right. So we're looking at here, and I, we're, we're going to build on that conversation. So guys, uh, if you're listening and you, 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 had, you didn't listen to the conversation with, with Mark and Dan last week, you should definitely go back and listen. Um, because you know we're, we're kind of talking about the Fed being on the verge of a policy mistake here. So what we're looking at uh, on this chart here is the US Fed funds target rate um, and various crashes that kind of occurred around peaks. Right um, and in troughs, you know, kind of at the same time. And the idea here, right, for the Federal Reserve overall, they're supposed to smooth the business cycle, right, with what they do in terms of interest rates. I think looking at this chart, you can make a pretty compelling case that they actually, because they look at at uh, you know lagging data, they sometimes tend to exacerbate that business cycle. And you can kind of see the peak, right? Uh, basically, whenever they're they're jacking up their their target rate, you start to see these uh, you know kind of breaks um, in the financial system, and it occurs uh, you know across various markets, right? It's not always US based, right? And kind of the, the, the very peak there in, in 1982, you know, you see the LATAM uh, debt crisis, right? Uh, and then kind of, you know, subsequent to that, you, they, this chart kind of highlights the, this, the, uh, the crash of 87, right? It was Black, uh, Black Monday or whatever. Um, and then, you, you know, LTCM, uh, right in 98, the, the tech bubble in 2001, subprime uh, mortgage crisis back in, right, uh, for 2007, uh, et cetera. So, uh, and, 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 you know, honestly, we're, we're starting to feel it, right? And for this is, this is a chart of the, uh, the S&P performance. This is during the H1, which is the first half of the year in total returns. We're on track to be the worst performing year since 1932. Um, and the last thing that I'll say before, we, before I turn it over to you, Mark, is that uh, this is kind of the Buffett indicator of whether or not stocks are cheap. And this is just market cap over GDP. And despite the carnage that we've seen in U.S. equities, global equities, credit markets, it's still looking expensive. So he kind of looks at that 100% rate, right? Kind of parity between uh, market cap and GDP, and we are still at 113%. Yeah, so. the actual parity rate is 70. <laughs> you know, the, 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 if, you, if you had this chart back, you know, longer, uh, 70 is the number, right? Mm. Because it costs money to make money. You, right. you can't have market cap equal GDP because there is some cost to generating profits. You know, you have to pay salaries and you have to pay taxes and you have to buy stuff to convert it into other stuff. So 70 is, is the number. But we've we've convinced ourselves that because of this this anomaly that happened in 2000 and to, again in 2007 of easy money raising that number up toward the, the 130, 140, is oh well no hundred is is the level no it's not and you know you say oh well we're you know companies are more efficient today and and we're more global I'm like but both of those are going the other direction globalization is going down again uh, efficiency is being challenged by higher input costs so uh, we are way overvalued and actually I was on TV I don't know a couple uh, maybe ten days ago or so. And they're like, well, you know, 
aren't, aren't tech stocks getting, getting really cheap again? I'm like, no. They're still one and a half to two standard deviations expensive, right? They've only been uh, this expensive 8% of the time. Yeah. 8% of the time, right? So, so no, we're not as bad as we were at the beginning of the year. Okay, fine. That was the top 2% of craziness. And, you know, I always say this is like literally um, saying, well, I'm not as drunk as my friend passed out in the back seat. I had to drive. I'm like, no, no, you didn't. Um, so being less egregiously overvalued doesn't make you cheap. Whereas Bitcoin has only been this cheap 4% of the time in its history yeah. relative to its fair value. So again, that doesn't mean it has to go higher from here. It doesn't mean it couldn't go lower. But statistically, probabilistically, one asset is in the fourth percentile cheap. The other is in the 92nd percentile expensive. That's just, it's just nonsense. Mark, do you, do you view some of the carnage that we see? Because we'll, we'll talk about this a little later in the episode, but obviously it's a pretty rough time for, for crypto in general. Uh, I mean, liquidity, credit is drying up in the yep. space, right? Obviously, a- asset values are going down and, and companies are starting to suffer. Do you view crypto a little bit as like the canary in the coal mine for what's going to go on, you know, on the macro stage? Because I, I think that's kind of what, what's making people so uh, worried in crypto is that, okay, we, we have this carnage, but there's still this colossal macro overhang where, to your point, Stocks are still expensive. It seems, I mean, like the real estate market in the U.S. Despite mortgages, uh, I mean, that's the one that I just can't seem to figure out. Like the mortgage rate is skyrocketing, but but home sales are still, you know, they they haven't seemed to be impacted. So, I well, mean, no, they, they have, um, mm. they have, and they're about to get really impacted. Uh, mortgage, new mortgage applications, uh, month over month, were down like ninety four percent. Okay, but. Yeah, right, right, and and yes, some some transactions are still happening, but those are kind of they were in the process, and um, you know, a buddy of mine has a I don't know if it's a cousin or a sister or something, but uh, who's a real estate broker in in New York, and she said she has no listings, like none, like people are just taking their stuff off because they don't they don't want because prices are collapsing and, and they're gonna collapse, particularly in certain markets, like high mm-hmm. end New York residential is gonna see some massive declines. You know, back down here in North Carolina, um, house right down the street from me uh, just went on the market on Monday. And mm-hmm. a month ago, a month ago, not like a year ago, a month ago, the sign would already have a sold on it. There would have been 17 offers. There would have been people like, you know, trying to sneak in on Sunday night and and make an offer. Um, It's still for sale. Now, that doesn't mean it won't sell. It it will sell because there's not a lot of inventory here because Apple is moving their headquarters to Raleigh. So, you know, a lot of people are moving out here. But uh, there's so much leverage still in the system. Incredible. Yeah. There's incredible margin debt in the system. There's incredible uh, government debt in the system. There's incredible personal debt in the system. We talked, I think, last week, no, two weeks ago, about the credit card uh, mm-hmm. numbers exploding. And um, 
And then, you know, the funny thing is, people are like, oh, retail sales are booming. Mike, are you joking? That's not adjusted for, it's not adjusted for inflation. Just because mm. people have to pay six, seven, eight dollars for gas, which is the bulk of that retail sales growth, that's inane. I mean, and the fact that people don't look through data, it's like the other thing that they don't adjust retail sales for is population growth. And I, mm-hmm. I was like, why wouldn't you adjust for that? But they don't. So there are more people buying stuff and they call that growth. Like that's, that's not growth. It's like when two companies merge and they say, oh, well, our, our revenues are going to go up 100%. I'm like, no, your, your revenues are the same. You added another company's revenues. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. It's just the amount of engineering of narrative that goes on is amazing. And just because something goes down 40 or 50% doesn't make it cheap. If it needs mm-hmm. to go down 90 or 95% to be below fair value. The only thing that matters with cheapness is value. Mm-hmm. Well said, and uh, you know, t- you know, to the to again the point that that you and Dan were kind of talking about, um, you know, last week, right? There's uh, there are forward looking indicators of of softening, right? So <laughs> this, you know, you've kind of got a chart of you know U.S. financial conditions, right? It's just kind of like monetary easing versus uh, manufacturing, right? So you know, the, we were talking about uh, PMI. Like this to, is, go we, back to that one for a second. Yeah, now, I'm not yeah. a PhD in statistics, <laughs> but that is a really high correlation. The red line and the blue mm-hmm. line are super highly correlated. And mm-hmm. you know, I was a wrestler in, in high school and uh, my coach he had this great line. He's like, you know, where the head goes, the body follows. Mm-hmm. So you want your opponent to go a certain way, move his head that direction and the body will follow. So the blue line is, is not talking about softening. The blue line is collapse. The blue line is recession bordering on potential for depression. And, you know, the PMIs are are going nowhere but down from here. Yeah. And, and it totally makes sense, right? Like to your point, if I need to spend money to make money, right? If you're a manufacturer, you need to finance um, all of your activity. So if credit is drying up or it's harder to access or whatever it is, then you necessarily need to take a look at your operations and say, okay, uh, I mean, maybe there's some activity that I thought I could finance before that's no longer the case. And you're starting to see that, like this was a huge miss. Um, so we've got US and global uh, PMIs here, right? US on the left and global on the right. And you know this this survey that gets done, people were expecting a 56. It came in at just over a 52, right? And uh, you know, I mean, I, I think the Fed um, there, there's a real case that you could make that they're not really listening to the market right now, and they're on the verge of making a pretty drastic policy mistake because the market is is already trying to get on sides, and the Fed is kind of continuing to hike into an environment which all the forward-looking indicators are telling you growth is really slowing down. Um, Look, we, we've talked about this. I mean. This is, I, I believe, I believe this is a, a 1937-esque policy mistake. Um, 1937 policy mistake, you know, turned a garden variety recession into the Great Depression. And, you know, the 90-year cycle says this is going to happen. You know, the 90-year cycle says that humans do stupid stuff, like really stupid stuff every 90 years. And I don't know why I have to go back and really understand it has to do with generational cycles and, you know, just inexperience and youth. And although, you know, Jerome is not young, but it's just, this is, this is bad. And, um, 
I think is probably the opposite of youth and inexperience. It's probably aged and intransigent. It's, it's kind of like why our government is so messed up right now. It's a bunch of, you know, septuagenarians and octogenarians. And people just get less pliable, less adjustable uh, as, as they age. And that's, you know, hate to say that, but it's true. Um, and this, you know, 1840s, bad depression, 1930s, bad depression, 2020s, again, I'm not, I'm not predicting it per se. I'm not wishing for it. I don't want to be in a depression. Trust me, I do not. Mm. But man, all signs are pointing to just really bad stuff. You know, mm. we're talking about runs on the bank in, in crypto. We're seeing literally digital in you know digital financial services companies can't call the banks you know closing their doors literally you know the run on the bank everyone tried to get their money out of celsius and they closed the doors and we've all seen the movie it's a wonderful life if you close your doors you're done it's over you have to keep the doors open and and what did george bailey do he took his own personal money and he handed it to depositors saying how much do you need to get by cuz your money's not here Right? It's in this person's house, in this person's house. That's what banks do. They lend the money out. And he had mama dollar and papa dollar at the end at six o'clock, but he did not have to close his doors and he survived to fight another day. And, and that's, that's the way it works. And so I think three this week, right? Celsius last week, Voyager this week, Babel. Uh, there was another. You close your doors, it's over. This episode is brought to you by Blockdaemon, the world's leading blockchain infrastructure platform. Blockdaemon's mission is simple. Make spinning up a node so easy a five-year-old could do it and so secure that any chief compliance officer in the world could sleep easy at night. In plain English, Blockdaemon allows anyone, whether you're a crypto native fund, a financial institution, a DeFi protocol, whatever, to participate in crypto more safely. For some, that can mean participating in governance. It could mean gathering real-time and accurate data. It could mean generating yield through staking, Whatever it is, when it comes to crypto, infrastructure is edge, and there's simply no better edge offered than the one from Blockdaemon. Blockdaemon supports a range of services on over 50 protocols, and that's a growing list. They have multiple layers of risk mitigation that include regional and data center diversity, 24-7 human and automated monitoring, a full-service team of engineers to avoid technical difficulties, and things like slashing insurance. In other words, they literally make it foolproof. If your organization relies on real-time, accurate data that comes from blockchains, please, please, please click the link at the bottom of this episode and go check them out. Again, it's important. Got to click the link at the bottom. Otherwise, I won't get my credit. Yeah, it's tough. Um, I, I, want, I want to get into, like, after, after this, last, this last point, I want to segue into what's going on in crypto and some of the stress that's going on in just the lending markets there. Um, but, you know, you know, the last, I guess... You know, because right now it's all it's this is almost maybe you could make the argument that this is kind of like peak inflation fear, peak uh, rate hiking fear, et cetera. But, you know, if you look at the, the Fed funds future spread, right, this is April 2023 versus 2024. People are at, the market is actually calling for essentially uh, 60 basis points of cuts yeah. in between January 1st and December 31st in 2023. So the market is kind of and you, you see the 10 year rolling over as well. So. You know, I mean, there is, I think the market does accept that there is some limit to what the Fed can do here. I'd be curious, you know, you know, what your take is on this. You know, the thing that, that that's so disconcerting to me is 
the, the, the policy tool doesn't fit the problem, right? What, what's mm. the problem that we, we have, right? Oil prices went up way too far, way too fast. Okay? So that, that's most of the quote unquote inflation. Used car prices went up way too fast. Again, probably another third of the, about half the inflation numbers are, are in oil, about a third are, are used car prices, and there's a little bit of other stuff. I mean, hmm. um, and so how many rate cuts, I'm sorry, how many rate hikes are going to cut the price of oil? None. I mean, I no, hmm. no impact on oil. Uh, oh, it'll, it'll, it'll make demand go down. This is not a demand problem. This is a supply problem. We don't have enough supply. Saudi could fix this tomorrow, theoretically. They, they say they have all this spare capacity, but they choose not to. Why do they choose not to? I don't know. You know they won't even talk to the president. The president really, really, really wants Saudi to make a big you know, announcement of, of, of more production, uh, but they won't even talk to the guy. So I thought they were supposed to be our best friends and allies. I, I don't know. It's kind of a weird dynamic. Uh, chip shortages. How many rate hikes are going to get TSMC to be able to produce more chips? Doesn't, that doesn't, that's not impacted. How, how many rate hikes are going to change the global wheat production yields this year? You know, that were impacted by the Ukraine problems because that's where you know, the breadbasket of, of Europe you know, how, how many rate hikes are going to change natural gas prices in Europe because Russia controls all the natural gas? I love I love the fact of, uh, oh, we're going to we're going to cripple Russia's economy with our sanctions and their current account surplus keeps going up because price of oil and gas went up and they get paid uh, in in rubles. I mean, in dollars and the ruble has strengthened all year. So, so much for crippling the economy, but I don't know. I, I don't really get, the only thing I kind of get is if you need there to be bullets in the gun in order to fire the gun, then yes, you needed to hike rates in order to cut them so you could signal easing. But as you showed in in your charts, the, the whole point of financial conditions and tightening happened long before the hikes, right? They really haven't hiked rates that much. I mean, hmm. 150 basis points. It's not like five or 6%. Uh, and the other problem is, we've talked about this. You and I, people listening to this, we don't borrow at Fed funds. Who borrows at Fed funds? Banks. That's the only Banks. people that borrow at Fed funds. And they turn around and, and invest that in treasuries and lever that trade up and, and make a lot of money. It's good for them and their balance sheets, but the rest of the world borrows at and like the people borrowing on their credit cards. Are they borrowing at one and a half percent? I don't think so. Try one and a half percent a month. I look. It's a. I I agree with you. I think it's a. It's a tough situation here. I and this 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 crunch that we're feeling globally, right? And in more in more. Uh, uh, traditional financial markets, it seems like we're going through that on steroids uh, in crypto. So to your last, so to your previous point about these runs on banks that are happening, let's yep. let's just talk about kind of the situation that's going on in crypto. We alluded to it last week in our discussion with Dan, but maybe we can get into some more detail this week. Um, so there's a lot of pressure on, again, let's not call them crypto banks, let's call them 
what, what did you call it? digital financial digital uh, financial services companies digital financial services companies okay great so uh, we've got a couple of these that are under stress recently and most of this it seems like is coming from the contagion that's associated with three arrows right three arrows again Ooh, yes yeah a lot of information coming out around these guys i have to admit like i i've been pretty surprised about this entire situation. I mean, their their reputation is, you know, they're the smartest guys in the room. Um, but it appears that they were being pretty risky, bordering on some bordering on some more than risky actions, let's say. Um, oh, bordering on not just disingenuous, but outright uh, misrepresentations, right? Mm-hmm. I think they, um, it's kind of like sins of omission versus sins of commission. Like Mm -hmm. if you go to a bank and say, I need to borrow some money and they say, well, how much other debt do you have? I don't have any other debt. Okay. That's a misrepresentation, but that's a sin of omission. Now it's a sin of commission because you actually made the the misstatement, but, but it's coming to light that they borrowed money from everybody, like literally from everybody. And there's no question that they were for a period of time, uh, which is kind of the way these stories always end, the smartest guys in the room, right? They turned a little bit of money into a whole lot of money, like, you know, thousands into billions uh, through trading and leverage and, and you know, some would say some good things, right? They anticipated some new projects doing well. Uh, they they you know, had the core projects that, that they were early on. But at the end of the day, uh, they, like any other leveraged speculator, because that's their, they were leveraged speculators. Uh, they, they had, you know, pay the piper. And you know, it turns out when you've borrowed too much, you know, 3 billion of equity, 18 billion of positions in an 80 vol asset world, some of those even higher vol, it's just too much, Right. One turn of leverage, you can survive, kind of. Two turns of leverage, now it's tough. You get to six turns of leverage, you don't need a very big move. And, a, you know, 30 to 20 move, you know, like that, it's just, it's game over. And yeah. I don't, I really don't understand, I've never understood this, whether it was long-term capital, and we've talked about this, long-term capital had a great business, convergence trading. You know, when a bond goes from 30 year to 29 year, the price drops five basis points. You can arb that all day long. You put 40 turns of leverage on it, 100 turns of leverage on it, because it's guaranteed to happen one year hence. 30 year bond turns in 29 year bond. But merger arbitrage? That isn't guaranteed to happen. Department of Justice said Honeywell deal. Nope, you don't get GE, don't get to buy it. So you don't put 40 turns of leverage on a merger arb deal where a judge can change the fate, right? Time can't change. So and I think I go ahead. I was going to say what you're alluding to there, right, is the GBTC arb that they ran in size, right, yeah. with an enormous amount of leverage on GBTC being the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, right? That's uh, the 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 uh, Barry's uh, you know Golden Goose, right, over there at Grayscale. And there were a lot of people that took bets that essentially, um, you know, it trades at a either a premium or a discount to NAV. Historically, it's tended to trade at a premium. Uh, a lot of people did not expect it to start trading at a very steep discount, which started costing three arrows a lot of money. Yeah, and again, I think that's a really good example of um, youth inexperience 
not understanding history, not being a student of history like yourself, uh, which is a really important thing to be. Uh, you know, here, the, the trade of buying private shares of GBTC, you know, trust, because this was a trust, Cayman Trust. The only way you could get it uh, in the beginning was to buy private shares of this limited partnership. And you had to be an accredited investor, right? And you had to hold it for one year. Then you could sell into the public markets as a secondary transaction. And so because there was a lot of demand for Bitcoin from retail investors, there was limited supply of these private shares. There was a spread. Mm -hmm. There was a positive premium. And it got as high as 40%, right? People would mm -hmm. pay a dollar 40 for a dollar of Bitcoin because Bitcoin prices were going up in their mind more than 40%. Plus, they're like, well, the only way I can get it is to buy this. And if the premium stays at 40, I can trade in and out and I get the whole capture of, of the price, which is not illogical. The illogical part was, wait a minute, why is the premium 40? Well, because supply is limited and demand is high. Well, what happens as more people put this trade on and a year goes by and those private shares become public shares? Well, now there's more supply. Well, that premium is going to shrink. Well, let's you know uh, plot that out. What happens when more people come in? Now that premium is going to go to par or... Even a discount, but here's the really ugly part. Closed-end funds, right? Funds that, that raise capital, buy a bunch of stuff, and then trade in the right? market can be arbitraged, right? You can, you can short the underlying components of a closed-end fund and put pressure on them to go down and, and buy the uh, closed-end trust. So if you look at closed-end funds, whether it's junk bond closed-end funds or equity closed-end funds, they traded a discount. And people didn't understand because they weren't around or they didn't do their homework that this is just a closed-end fund. It's a trust, yeah, yeah different name, but it's a closed-end fund. So then in the infinite wisdom, I will say intentional malice of the SEC to approve Bitcoin futures, they created a vehicle for the banks. Because remember, this is the then they fight you phase, right? 2009 to 15, first they ignore you. Yeah, bunch of nerds and geeks playing with this funny money, whatever. Then, mm. then they laugh at you. 15 to 21, wait, wait, they're getting rich. Oh, oh, but there's still a bunch of nerds and geeks. And it's magic internet money, who cares? 2022 to 2027 is then they fight you. They're like, oh shit, this is real. And this is threatening me. And so if, you, if you're a big bank and you don't want this to exist, you can go into the futures market and you can short the shit. I should probably shouldn't swear on this, but you, should, you can short the heck out of... Yeah, it's like HBO. Um, you can short the heck out of this asset and cause people to lose money. And, you know, back in the day, 1907... Uh, and this will all come around to, to this conversation. In 1907, there was this thing called Knickerbocker Trust. And Knickerbocker Trust was eating J.P. Morgan's lunch. They were just a better 
bank. They were a trust company, not a bank, you know, chartered under a different, different rule. But you could deposit your money. And, and it literally was like it's a wonderful life. Just like that, right? The building alone, the little building alone against the big Mr. Potter, the evil guy. And, and J.P. Morgan famously said, well, I, I, I like a little competition. I don't really like a lot of competition. So as the, rumor, as the story goes, J.P. said, well, I don't like Knickerbocker Trust. I will spread rumors that they are insolvent and I will cause a run on the bank. And the famous picture, go to Wikipedia and look at run on the bank. And there's a picture of these ladies in dresses and heels and guys in top hats running with their umbrellas to get their money out of Knickerbocker Trust. And the uh, banking system was in collapse, called the Panic of 1907. And basically, uh, J.P. Morgan and John D. Rockefeller, his buddy, pledged $25 million. Literally, like the scene in It's a Wonderful Life, which was a parody of that, right, where He's sitting there with the bank, the bank guy's body, and he says, I've guaranteed the assets at the bank. They will open their doors tomorrow. And George Bailey says, yeah, because he just took over the bank. Yes, that's what they did. And they were able to, uh, J.P. Morgan took over Knickerbocker Trust for pennies on the dollar. Today, there's something called the 1907 Trust Act, which is what SBF and FTX just used to make the offer uh, for um, BlockFi. So, and then yesterday, someone's calling SBF, J.P. Morgan, John, John Pierpont Morgan, the second. This is all kind of surreal. And that is, that is what's happening. And the GBTC problem uh, that got worse last week was Three Arrows Capital owned a whole bunch of GBTC. And the discount had gone to 30 plus percent. Well, when the lender sees that collateral, people are like, oh, well, now we can short the heck out of it even more. And that spread widened, causing more losses, causing more people to panic. And that is the nature of panics. And so we are, I think we're past, I think, I think we might be past the peak of the panic because there are three questions you have to ask yourself today. Will digital assets exist in the future? Yes or no? If you believe no, don't watch this show and, and just go back to your, to your regular life. And it's okay. You, 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 that's fine. Yes or no? If yes, okay. Second question. Do you believe people will want to earn interest on their digital assets the same way they do in the banking world? Yes or no? If you don't believe that, right? If you think, oh, people are only going to do staking or they're going to do something, they're just going to hold on to their own coins, you know, not your coins, not your, uh, not your keys, not your coins. Fine, you can believe that. But if you believe those first two things, if you believe digital assets will exist and that people will deposit them in institutions to earn interest on them, then some of these lenders are going to exist in the future and are going to be really important institutions in the digital age. But that doesn't mean that the incumbents aren't going to fight to try to keep them out. Yeah, that's so you, you kind of bring up the next phase. And this is every, everything that's going on right now is you, you're starting to see some big players step in, right? So you look to SBF, whether it's happening through FTX or it's happening through Alameda, we're starting to see these things that are widely being called bailouts, right? So this happened with 
BlockFi, right? Um, and that was a $250 million revolving line of credit. Seems like, I mean, you would know better than me, but that there's some other uh, covenants, right? Uh, right in the in the event that they default. Um, yeah, there's some, there's some, it, you know, in Ken Griffin at Citadel um, got famous. There's a famous Bloomberg uh, cover story of him with a bunch of sharks on the cover and, you know, about, about Citadel's death spiral converts. And so when a company used to get in trouble, like they needed capital, they would go to Ken. And when you really need capital, you're probably not going to get a really good deal on the loan, mm-hmm. right? When you don't need capital, you can get a good deal. But when you need capital, and Ken had these things where he would give you, he would give you a convertible bond, just lend you. But there are these things that if you didn't meet certain criteria, he convert and he own you. And mm-hmm. it's like I, I never, I've never understood why people uh, borrow from Citadel Securities to short stuff. Why would you tell your largest competitor what you're short so they can squeeze the heck out of you? I, I've, been, I've never understood that, but he's, he, Ken's a genius. One of the smartest people I've ever met. Absolute monster, uh, moneymaker and, and innovator. But uh, yeah, we, we are, there are, there are some other covenants to these deals that are, are very sinister. And we have to get the word sinister in for sinister Saturday. Mm. So we do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I would assume, you know, there was a, there was a similar loan made to um, through uh, the Alameda entity, right? Alameda Ventures uh, to Voyager. And that was, that was a little bit larger. And again, to tie this all back to three arrows and why this stuff matters so much, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure Voyager went public with the, the, that, the fact that they had uh, $663 million worth of exposure uh, to 3AC and that their cash position was not, uh, they were not in a position basically to, basically to absorb that loss. The loan that was extended to Voyager essentially was right about that amount, right? Um, so it seems yeah. like it was yeah, yeah. It's a direct yeah. attempt, right, to, to plug the hole. And, you know, uh, I guess there, there are two different sides of this, right? And, and here's what I will, the other thing that I will say about this as well is that, look, in a system where you don't have the Federal Reserve, right, and crypto roundly rejects, Correct. we do not want a, a mechanism in the middle, right, that's kind of the whole point of this space, then... Yeah, part of banking is a little bit of a confidence game, right? So on the one hand, you know, I can I see all these people going out on Twitter saying, "Why would you ever have a C be in a C five lender? You got to get your money out." Look, guys, people need banking services, right? The need for banking services. Those people, those people are are idiots. First of all, second, it's possible that some of them, and I mean that sincerely, they're idiots. Second, sincerely, some of them may be anonymous accounts that are actually from the big institutions that want these things to go away. So don't ever forget that. Like I see people retweeting these things, these long, you know, things from these these animal, you know, anons. And these people have like 600 followers. Why why would you listen to that person as if they are an expert? Mm -hmm. Think, consider the source. Think about why this is out there. And the idea of saying you need, you know, that CFI is bad, look, CFI is the evolution of TradFi. And yes, we want the world, those of us who believe in it, want to have a, a DeFi world. That's fine. But you can't do certain things in pure DeFi. Okay? You just can't. And, and particularly can't do it yet. And maybe when there is a robust DeFi system that, that can compete with the traditional CFI models, but we've talked about this. My dad, no way. 
He's not going to hold his own keys. It's just not going to happen. And there are plenty of people just like we don't need banks. I could lend you money, right? Like directly, peer to peer. That happens all the time. But I don't want to keep my cash in my house. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't. I want to earn interest on it. I want to. I want you know to have access to it digitally. Well, just put it all in Bitcoin. Yeah, but then I have a very volatile asset, eighty volatility, and and in cash. Blockchain is yeah. not. I mean, Bitcoin is not cash. Let let's be perfectly clear about that. It right. is not cash. So you know, I, I th- and it's funny the the Latin root of the word credit is credo, which is I believe. You you the, in the in the very the very assumption right of of banking is you Love need it. people to believe in each other. You need trust, and if we don't have some central mechanism, right, the Federal Reserve, the lender of last resort, then I, I don't know. It's it's really hard to get around the idea that you do need to have some trust and, and belief in these systems. So, you know, I, I guess the one argument that you see kind of uh, flitting around uh, Twitter is that, hey, let all of these institutions just die, get all the pain out, like, sorry, you know, retail, this is bad for retail investor, et cetera, et cetera. But it's hard for me to escape that first principles idea, like to your point, that we do need banks. And if you are advocating for, like, what, what are you advocating for here? I, that's what I'm just like, what are you advocating for? And And I think actually, I think, this is this is my this is my uh, conjecture here, but I think the thing that one of the things that we will realize was broken this time around is this reliance on pure anonymity. I think there are limits to anonymity, frankly, mm-hmm. and I think what what we would ideally be building towards is some sort of on chain credentialism. Uh, like there's actually an old idea from 2017. You can go back. Selkis used to talk about this token curated list, TCR. This is widely now uh, talked about as like a bad idea, failed thing, whatever. But the idea mm-hmm. was that, you know, with on-chain data, you can build up some sort of um, identity, an on-chain identity where people can track Absolutely. you, whether or not you're credit worthy, trustworthy based on the actions that you've taken on-chain. Um, and I think, you know, it started with Sifu and there have been so many other, uh, you know, instances since then that you can't just trust people because there's, they tweet stuff that gets a lot of engagement because the false assumption that that restaurant, that less rests on is that people are smart when in crowds, people are dumb. Uh, and but, but it's worse yeah. than that. They're sinister. Mm. Go to Yelp and, and read the comments or the reviews. Half. 80%, I don't even know the number. I'm making that number up like 85 statistics, 85% of statistics are made up on the spot, right? So I don't know what the <laughs> number is, but a whole bunch of them are done by the competitors, right? If you got a dentist, I mean, my, my friend, right, runs a uh, IVF clinic, right? He's a very, you know, not famous, but he's a very, very well-known doctor, helps people, you know, have kids and he's spectacular, right? But his biggest competitor went on uh, Yelp and wrote all these bad reviews. And he's like, that's ridiculous. How can that, how can that happen? How can somebody go in? But there's no, there's no restriction to that. And so again, why would you read a, a tweet storm from an anonymous account making a bunch of conjectures that most of them are just wrong? Like this otter dude, I mean, or guy, guy, whoever, whoever they are, um, most of what they write is wrong. A couple of things are right, but most of it's just factually incorrect. Yeah. And yet it creates this storm and people react to it. I'm like, well, 
If I told you to jump off the bridge, would you jump off the bridge? Why are you doing that? Why don't you think about what's your experience been with this institution that you work with? Yeah. Now, if your experience has been negative, like you tried to move your capital and it didn't work, <laughs> I had this experience with my bank, my bank bank. I tried to transfer some money to Coinbase and they put a 14-day hold on it. I'm like 14 days? Are you kidding me? Seriously? Like, oh yeah, this this was crazy. This I mean, this was a while ago, but they didn't want right money going from TradFi system into digital assets. So they tried, you know to stop it, but they, they had to eventually do it. But if you read the rules of your bank account, it's it's not your money. They can they can actually not transfer it if they don't if they want to. So anyway. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I uh I look I, I think at the end of the day, um people need to be Obviously, it's good to be careful, but also we need to have a little bit of trust, right, in, in things that people are doing. Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, Mark, I know that's. Oh I know you got to run, but but I think the yep. point you just made on on credentializing uh, identity, I think, is so important. You know, think about mm -hmm. it. If you're reading Twitter and somebody makes a nutrition claim, and that person is obese, poor health, why, in real life, why why would you listen to that? It's like our health ministers around the world. You've seen the picture. They're all like, oh my God. I mean, why would we listen to them? But, you know, look at Sean Parker or Sean Baker, Sean Baker, right? This guy's jacked and he's good looking and he makes a point on nutrition. I'm listening to that guy. Credibility. And there should be a way, to your point, for everyone to know, yeah, when financial services, I'm going to listen to that person. In nutrition, I'm going to listen to that person. And a comment is not equal. If I comment... On, on beauty and, and, and uh, glamour, don't listen to me. I have no style, I have no taste. I mean, don't listen to me. I still may comment and I'm free to do that, but I should get no credibility score for that. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, all right, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Uh, Mark, as always, best hour of my week. My friend, I will see you back here same time next week. All, all right. right, see you, man. Cheers. Have a good weekend.